Today we're going to be looking here at Psalm 1 on the, the title Two Paths. I'm hoping over these next months, once a month, to preach on a psalm. And the purpose will be either preaching the psalm, and then over that month we'll sing the psalm a number of times. And it's to refresh us with psalms, or maybe first to learn some psalms that we're not so familiar with, uh, so that indeed uh, they will be very much part of our understanding and our praise. The book of Psalms would have been the praise book that Jesus would have used and would have known well. And when we study and when we sing the Psalms, we're coming to words that Jesus would have sang. Now, of course, he didn't sing it in English. He sang it in Aramaic or Hebrew. And so the, the thought of a 12-year-old Jesus singing these Psalms in the temple at Jerusalem, or Jesus as a teenager singing them at the local synagogue, or Jesus as an adult singing these Psalms in the upper room with his disciples. Uh, that should thrill us. As we look at the psalm, and later as we'll be singing the psalm, the thought that we're singing something that Jesus sang, it should be something that should be exciting to us. Hebrews 2 and verse 12, it uses words to speak about Jesus from Psalm 22. And this is what it says, attributing these to Jesus. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. Jesus delighted to sing praise to his Father. Can you imagine what it would have been like to watch a 12-year-old Jesus sing one of these psalms, or Jesus as a teenager, or Jesus as a young man. I'm sure there was a passion, a real commitment in his singing. There wouldn't be an attitude, oh, I'm not singing that because I don't like that oil, uh, that oil piece, or I don't like that oil tune, or I don't like that new tune. He was caught with his father in his singing. I remember many years ago, my mum and dad were going to Scotland on holiday. I was probably about 18 at the time, and they asked if I would go with them. And I said, I'll go in one condition. We can be in Aberdeen on the Sunday. And the purpose of being Aberdeen on the Sunday was I wanted to go to Kilcompston South Church, where the Reverend William still was the minister. And at that service, uh, so much struck me about him. At that stage, he was a man who was about 80. But one of the things that really struck me was the way he sang. He was quite musical, and he had a big music hymn book in his hand. He held it in one hand. And as he sang, he was using another finger, and he was singing to God. And he was, I never have seen anyone sing with such a passion to God. And I think in some senses, that's the way Jesus would have done it. These Psalms are very important to study for a number of reasons. The, the Psalms teach us so much about life. Uh, they teach us a lot about worshiping God. They teach us a lot about prayer. So what we get from these psalms is important for us all, and not just to hear them preach, but to even learn and memorize some of these psalms is very important. Psalm 1, which we're looking at today, is a, an introduction to the whole book of psalms. It's, it's like a guardian which sort of guides you about what this is all about. And as we look at the psalm, we're going to look at three things in this today. The first thing is the contrast in verses 1 to 2. 
There we read in verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And here there is a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And the righteous are those who are right with God through a saving faith in the Lord, whereas the wicked are everyone else. And this contrast between the righteous and the wicked, it runs through the whole book of Psalms. And one of the great messages of the book of Psalms is that real blessing, true happiness in life is to be found in the way of righteousness. It's not to be found in the ways of the wicked. Now, as you go through the Psalms, the Psalms do not shy away from some objections that people will raise that this is not what we see in the world around. Often we see the wicked flourish and the righteous suffering, and many of the Psalms deal with that. But in the end, they come to the same conclusion that at the end of the day, blessing and righteousness go hand in hand. Wickedness and judgment will go hand in hand. Now, we see here in verse 1 that the righteous man, or the righteous woman, is not like the wicked. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There must always be this negative aspect of our Christianity. If we profess to be Christians, if we say we belong to Jesus, we have to be different from the world. We cannot belong to Jesus and live the way our pagan neighbor lives. The way we live, our attitude should be different. The Reverend Eric Alexander speaks about one time preaching at Oxford University. And when he was at Oxford University, a, a man, a very clever man who was a physicist, came to him uh, and he says to Eric Alexander, he says, I don't remember too much of what you said, to be honest, but in listening, he says, this is what hit me. I am a professing Christian, but a practical atheist. In other words, he professes to know Jesus, but the way he lives, he lives as if Jesus and God does not exist. There's this gap between what he professes and how he lives. Now, the world is very happy if that is true for us. It's very happy for you to have your personal religion, but that shouldn't impact the way you live your life and the way you do your work and so forth. But we're not to be like that. Psalm 1 argues that this can't be the way. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, if you notice in that Psalm 1, there's a, a progression here in how sin takes over. He walks, he stands, he sits. So, more and more sin and evil is controlling his life. He's getting more immersed in it. A progression about how sin and evil gets a hold of someone's life. And there's always the danger that when we begin to compromise, Sin will draw us in deeper and deeper. And let me say this particularly to our young people. 
Be so careful of the influence of others when you're at school. Be so careful about the influence of your peers. When I was at university, I uh, shared a house for a number of years once there was so there was always maybe at least one non-Christian in the house, but there was always some Christians there. But I remember my last year at university, and uh, I was in a house where everyone else was a non-Christian. <laughs> I'm pretty mad too, I must add. Uh, they were as well. Nice fellas, but pretty mad. And it hit me that year, in a way I never hit before that, I couldn't just have their company for a year and survive. And that year, I made an extra commitment to get more involved in the Christian Union. I wouldn't have survived, I wouldn't have grown as a Christian if I just was immersed in this godless company. We had to be careful. Think of the story in the Bible of Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew who followed him to the promised land. But remember, there's a dispute between their, their herdsmen, and then they separated. And initially, Lot goes towards the city of Sodom. He goes to that valley where the land was good. So he just goes into that area. And then he goes to live in Sodom. And then by the time when the angels come to Sodom and is going to be destroyed, he's at the city gate. He's in the council. He's fully immersed in so much of the life of that city. We have to be careful that we do not be sucked in like this. So there's this progression in the sense of walking, standing, sitting. But there's also a progression in the activities of the wicked here in verse 1. It speaks about the counsel of the wicked. This is what they say. Then there's the way of sinners. This is the way that they behave. And then there's the seat of scoffers. And this is going deeper. This is about their, their attitude, and particularly their attitude to God. And what does scoffing mean? If somebody scoffs at someone or something, they are not taking it seriously. And a scoffer is someone who doesn't take God seriously. And we need to realize today that people around us, people in your classroom, people in your workplace, people in your family, people in your community, need to see Christians of substance. Christians who take God seriously, Christians of weight, Christians of real character. T.S. Eliot was a famous poet, and one of his famous poems is called The, the Hollow Men. Uh, he wrote this after World War I when things were very difficult in the country and there's a lot of disillusionment of where things are going. And in this poem, The Hollow Man, he, he's talking about in the dire situation they're in, they don't see men of substance. He says this in the poem, we are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men, leaning together, headpiece filled with straw, alas. Our dried voices, when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless as wind in dry grass. And he looked around on the situation in Britain in those days after the First World War. Things were they're in the Depression, and things were not looking good at all. 
and to, for things to get better. The country needed people of substance. But he looked around and all that he could see was hollow men, including himself. But what we see in this psalm is, is how individual believers, how the church as a body of believers become this people of substance, become this people of spiritual weight. Look there in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And the law here isn't just the commandments of God. It's the word Torah, which sometimes is used for the first five books of the Bible. It's also used for the whole Bible. So basically the psalmist is saying the person of substance, the person who delights in God's word, who delights in God's truth. And it's not just he casually takes the truth and it just goes over his head. He meditates on it. He focuses on it. Some believe the word meditate, we'll see a picture coming up here, comes from a word which speaks about a cow chewing its cud. If you look at a cow, how long it can have this piece of grass in its mouth and chews and chews and chews and chews. This is what we're called to do. Now, don't go out in the fields this afternoon and eat grass. Uh, but chew on the Word of God. Chew on the truth of Jesus. Take time to really get into it. Don't scoff at it. Don't treat it lightly. Don't be casual with it. Descartes, some of our young people will in school do Cartesian graphs, comes from Descartes, who's a mathematician and philosopher. He says this, what shapes a man's thinking shapes his life. As your thinking is shaped, your life is shaped. As your thinking is shaped by the Word of God, it will be sh your life will be shaped by the Word of God. If your thinking is shaped by the world and its ways, your life will be shaped that way. Are you delighting in the Word of God? Does the Word of God really give you pleasure to read it? to study it. Henry Martin, I've quoted this before, you'll see him, he was a missionary to India. He had a saying that if any book took his affections more than the Word of God, he would set that book aside. What do you delight in more than studying the Bible? What book, what magazine, what television programs, what social media, what takes your delight more than the Word of God? Maybe this week you need a fast, not a fast of going without food, but a fast maybe of turning off that TV program, turning off the TV maybe altogether, a fast of not going onto Facebook, a fast of not reading that magazine or newspaper, a fast of putting away the order trader or whatever is your fancy fast to focus on the Word of God, that your delight in the Word of God would be restored. This is the righteous man. His delight is in the Word of God. So there we see the contrast. And then secondly, we see the comparison in verses 3 to 4. And first of all, the righteous is like a tree in verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, 
and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This stream for the, for the tree is needed because it's very dry land. And the tree flourishes, it's fruitful, because its roots go deep down into the moisture which it gets from the nearby river. And in the barren desert of this world, life will flourish for Christ only as we go deep with Christ through His Word and the Holy Spirit. In this dry spell over the summertime, you can see where in your garden where roots don't go very deep. In our lawn at the back of the manse, you can see where the drains are. It's it's brown, it's drier, it's more dead because the soil isn't deep there. The roots don't go deep. It's not getting the moisture it needs. If we are going to stand, if we are going to flourish in difficult days, our roots need to be deep in Jesus. Are your roots going deep in the Word of God? What are you going to do about this? You need to resolve to do something about this today. If you've been neglecting reading the Bible, you have to resolve. Think in your mind, when can you do this? Be more devoted, more committed to seriously studying the Word of God. Do it privately. Do it with God's people. We're seeking to create more opportunities for that in in the way our program is. Take this seriously. But the comparison then of the wicked is that in verse 4, the wicked are like chaff. They're not like a flourishing tree. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind dries away. This speaks of people who are dry and lightweight. You think of how corn, it was thrown up in the air, and then the the very light chaff, the waste products, it would be blown to the side, very easily blown away when trouble comes. That's what the wicked are pictured like. It's, It's a similar language to what Jesus used in the wise and the foolish builder. The wise builder built his house on the rock of God's Word. And when the storms came, the house stood. But the foolish man built his house in the sand. And when the storm came, it collapsed. That's the chaff that when struggles, when trials come, when temptation comes, they're swept away. But let's remember who the wicked are here. Who are the wicked who are the chaff? It's not just the, the murderers and the rapists, and the terrorists, and so forth. The wicked are all who are not righteous, all who are not saved, all who are not born again by the Spirit of God, all who are not right with God through Jesus. Do you think of what Jesus spoke about? The broad and the narrow road. The broad road is the wicked, The narrow road is the righteous, the saved, the born again. There was no middle road for good, respectable Presbyterians who are not saved. We have to be so clear here. There's only two camps, the righteous and the wicked. And if you're in the camp of the wicked here today, you will be blown away like the chaff. The comparison, the righteous are like a tree that will flourish. The wicked are like the chaff that will be blown away. And this leads us to the conclusion in verses 5 to 6. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. 
For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We see here that the, the righteous are able to stand in the judgment. We're just able to stand before Jesus without fear because we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We're part of this great congregation of worship for all of eternity, those who are right through trusting in Jesus. They're known by Jesus. They belong to Jesus. They have received His salvation. They've entered into a relationship with Jesus. This relationship is evident in how they live. It speaks there in verse 5 how the Lord knows the way of the righteous, or in verse 6, sorry. So the Lord identifies the way of the righteous because they live His way, to follow His God. Now, we're not perfect, but by knowing Christ, by trusting Christ, by pleading His grace into our life, we seek to live in the ways of the Lord. By contrast, the wicked will not stand at the judgment. They will not be numbered among the righteous in the great congregation. It says they will perish, which means they will perish eternally. This means the wicked will go to that place of outer darkness, the place where there's weeping and wailing, a gnashing of teeth, a place described as the lake of fire, a place where there's not a reprieve even for one moment. Think of the story of the rich man of Lazarus. And the rich man who went to hell, he was burning, he was in torment in the fire, and he wanted Lazarus to come and to just put a bit of water on his tongue. And he was told, no. No reprieve, no comfort, no hope for all of eternity. The wicked are cast away. The wicked will perish. George Whitfield, the great English preacher of the 1700s, he went a number of occasions over to America, particularly to Georgia, to preach over there. On one occasion, he was preaching on this Psalm 1 and about the wicked being cast away, and he, he used the illustration of a, a man on a raft on a river. And the man was lovely sunny day. He was lying back. He was comfortable. He was half asleep. But up ahead, unknown to the man, the river was getting quicker, and then there was, it would go over a great cliff and he would go to his destruction. He would perish. But the man was indifferent. He was totally unaware of it. And as Whitfield shared this illustration, he asked, what can be done for such a man? And someone in the congregation, moved by the illustration, shouted out, you must warn him. You must warn him. Dear friends, if you're not saved, if you do not know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, if you're not part of the righteous, you're that man, you're that woman on the raft. 
you're comfortable, it's easy going, but the river's getting faster. The cliff is getting closer. Destruction is ahead. And today you're being warned. If you're the wicked, you're the chaff, it will perish. You must flee to Christ. You must flee to Him and not just say a wee prayer, but flee to Him in faith, trusting that His death is your only hope. Flee to Him in repentance, saying, Be my, the Lord of my life. Now, you can't do that yourself. You can't live for Him, be yourself. But He will help you. But you must be serious about this. Faith and repentance. The only hope is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. It instructs us, it guides us, it teaches us, but it also really challenges us. And Father, we just pray that you'd confirm to every heart here today whether we're part of the righteous or the wicked. If we're part of the righteous, give us that grace, Father, to, to be able to live like the righteous and not like the wicked, and to realize the seriousness of this, and to go deeper into your truth, into your word, and into Jesus. If we're part of the wicked, it's not a word we would maybe use about ourselves, but if we're outside of Christ, that is where we are. We're hopeless, we're helpless. All we can do is plead. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. For such grace we pray. Amen.